You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, episode 24. It was the first time in my life where I was completely confident and in tune and trusting of my body in ways that I cannot explain. We live in a world where women are often told not to do those things, to not trust themselves, to not trust their bodies, not just in giving birth, but in many of our experiences that have to do with ourselves. But this experience you know, really was transformative and powerful, not just because I was becoming her mom, but I really had to trust my body to do what it had to do to birth this child. And I was, you know, just grateful that, that I had that experience and, and the training that you and Heidi provided was really instrumental to that. Hey there, and welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves-Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. If you enjoy this show, we'd be incredibly grateful if you'd share it with a friend. You can follow and share our posts on social media at Birth Matters NYC or simply tell them to search for Birth Matters wherever they listen to podcasts. Today, Stephanie, who's an attorney for an organization called Protect Democracy, shares the story of her daughter Kamathi's birth, which was an induced labor that Stephanie was able to move through without any pain meds and with the support of a doula. She shares how she chose a doula who was Latina as she wanted someone who could understand her background and experience as a Puerto Rican woman and help her most effectively advocate for herself as needed. She also describes some of the creative ways she found much-needed support through social media, especially after birth, and will also touch on the challenges and changes in the nature of her relationship with Kamathi's dad toward co-parenting early on in their daughter's life and how much more support she needed as a result. Before we get started on the birth story, today's episode is brought to you by the Birth Matters Complete Online Course. If you can't squeeze in an in-person group birth class series, or if you didn't feel like the one you took was comprehensive enough, or if you don't even have a quality class available in your area, I have the perfect solution for you. Birth Matters Complete Course is an online recorded version of my in-person full series. It covers not only prep for an amazing birth with self-advocacy tips, best current evidence, and tips for partners, but also holistic postpartum wellness, breastfeeding, and newborn care. And to top it off, you get lifetime access so that you can use it as a refresher later in this or future pregnancies. For New York City locals, you have an option to add to the course an in-person, one-evening, hands-on comfort measures workshop, which is a really ideal option for the more tactile parts of the course. Check it out at birthmattersonline.com. Now let's get started with today's birth story. Welcome to the Birth Matters podcast. Today I have Stephanie with me. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. Uh, Why don't you share if you'd like to share what you do for a living as well as where you are in your parenting journey? Yes, I am actually a civil and human rights attorney at an organization called Protect Democracy. And uh, where I am in my parenting journey, my daughter Kamathi Soul is 14 months old. She is my only daughter and um, just really blessed to have her in my life. And I just loved your, you had a couple of YouTube videos. I don't even know if they're still up on YouTube, but your baby shower was the coolest thing. (laughs) It was so celebratory with dancing and singing and it was just so, so cool. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, uh, my parents, they planned it. A lot of it was a surprise and they really wanted to bring in everything of who Kamathi is. Um, We're Puerto Rican and her dad's black. And so we wanted to bring in all of those elements and, you know, have a space for the family to really, you know, bask in who we are and who she is. And it was really amazing. I was like, I wish I could have been there. That is the (laughs) coolest shower. I just loved bringing in both cultures and all of that. Really, really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And thanks for sharing that with me. And if you're okay with my linking those things in the show notes, I would love to share it because it's just, oh, the joy in it is amazing. And it might give other people ideas on how to incorporate their own cultures into their baby showers. (laughs) Absolutely. And I looked at dozens of videos before having my own. So (laughs) I totally understand the, the value in sharing it too. 
<laughs> Wonderful. So why don't you just jump right into wherever you'd like to start, whether that's in pregnancy or your birth story, whatever. Awesome. Well, I had a pretty great pregnancy in the sense that, you know, the first three months I had pretty bad nausea, but, you know, I think pretty normal in the pregnancy. Um, second trimester, I think pretty early on, uh, the doctors told me that I had hypothyroid, um, which my understanding is it's when your thyroid already thinks it's producing enough of certain hormones and it's not. And so I had to start taking supplements um, to ensure that I had the right hormone levels and they would monitor the baby. So I would go to see my doctor every two weeks. And then in between, I would go to the hospital to get um, an ultrasound just to ensure that the baby was growing correctly as sometimes hypothyroid babies can kind of go, you know, much smaller or not be on the right track. Um, but everything was fine. She was great. Third trimester rolled around pretty quickly. <laughs> and um, it was in that trimester where I, you know, had the good fortune of taking your class. And I was actually recommended to your class by my amazing doula, Heidi Ramirez, and also met with her during that time and took your class. And I am very certain <laughs> that I would not have had the birth experience that I had had it not been for those two things. So let me back up a little bit and talk a little bit about myself in the broader context of this pregnancy, which is I am one of two sisters. I'm 31. My sister is almost 30. And we're the oldest cousins of like a generation um, of cousins in the sense that there, it's been a long time since we've had babies in our family. And so there wasn't, you know, people that I could very easily talk to around birthing because it was my mom's generation who was the closest one and they've been out of that for a while. And so when I say that I really needed support in terms of just like learning everything that, that you could think about with birthing, um, I'm just glad that I had the resources and the capacity to, to work with you and, and with Heidi to do that. And so I knew pretty early on in my pregnancy that my goal, my aspiration would be to have a birth that was non-medicated, um, have a you know, vaginal birth if I could. And I, I knew that aspirationally. I just didn't know all that it entailed to get there. But I knew that it entailed work in the sense that you're not, you're not going to go run a marathon and not train for it. Um, you're not going to like go to law school and then not like study and take the bar and boom, you're a lawyer. It doesn't work like that. And I, and I knew I had the sense that like birthing was going to be like that, especially the kind of birth that I wanted, given the society that we live in, which just doesn't foster and doesn't really help women and moms and people who want to birth that way, birth that way. And so, yeah, so I share all that to say I was led to you and Heidi and um, it, it was really transformative. I, you know, to go into the actual birthing story and then maybe talk a little bit about what I learned from your class kind of impacted that birthing. Can I just ask, um, how did you hear about doulas and Great. how did you find Heidi? Great question. So I heard about doulas. So I'm a little bit of a nerd <laughs> in the sense that every time I'm about to tackle something, you know, I'm going to read up a lot. So when I figured out that I was pregnant, <laughs> I was like, oh crap, I know nothing about being pregnant and probably read as many moms do every single book out there, every blog, every video, spent countless hours on podcasts and quickly realized not just the, you know, the benefits of having a doula to learn, but the actual benefits of having a doula to have a, a birthing experience that was actually safer, healthier, um, and for a lot of women, less just less traumatic. Um, and I wanted to, to be able to experience that. And so I knew early on that I wanted a doula. Uh, and I think there was a part of me too that, you know, I think we all want our moms there and our grandmas. And, and I think on the one hand, I did want that, but I also didn't want my mom in the room in case something went wrong um, and for her to just be in that moment. So I wanted someone that was, you know, my support, but also someone that wasn't my mom, <laughs> in the sense that if something started to go a little bit, you know, haywire, you know, I'd have someone that, that could stay calm and focused. Um, and so the way that I found it was I actually just went on doulamatch.com, which was recommended by a number of sources that I was looking into. And I knew that I wanted a doula that was a woman of color. I'm Puerto Rican and, you know, my daughter's father is black. And so um, I wanted a doula that would understand, you know, our experiences, but also as a mom of color, the experiences of moms of color, 
in kind of the medical field. I knew that I wanted to have a birth in a hospital, even though I wanted it to be, you know, natural and all that. Natural in the sense of like unmedicated and vaginal. So I wanted a... And did you know going into it, did you know about the worse outcomes for women of color? Is that was, was that one of your reasons for wanting a doula like that? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, so even before I got pregnant, you know, a lot of my work is around racial justice. Um, and within the, the realm of racial justice, there's a lot of work on mother mortality and particularly a woman of color and even more specifically a black woman. Um, so I was very acute and, and aware of mother mortality rates, um, what happened to moms of color, not just themselves, but their babies in, in these moments. And so I wanted someone that not, not would just only understand my fears, which honestly, one of my biggest fears was dying postpartum. That was my biggest fear. But also just advocating uh, in a way that she understood things that we might be experiencing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I was looking for a woman of color doula. I was looking for a doula who had done a number of, you know, births before uh, and someone that, you know, we, we matched well with in the sense of like we clicked, you know. And so I called three doulas and Heidi, you know, was by far the person that I felt a, a very deep connection with. And, um, and I should mention that Heidi just happens to be on my short list of recommended doulas and a number of my students have adored her. So I'll be sure to link her in the show notes. That would be awesome. So I think I was about to start sharing the birth story. Yeah, go um, right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> which I am very excited to share. I should, I should say that before giving birth, and this is actually something you recommended, is just to really listen to a lot of positive birthing stories. And I did that. I did that, you know, even before I knew that it was a, a thing to actually do. Um, so I'm very excited to share my story. And I actually share it as much as I can to moms and friends who are pregnant, um, and want to hear, you know, positive birth stories, but so excited to share it. So Kamathi's due date was October 13th and my water broke naturally on October 12th. It was around 8 a.m. I woke up from sleeping and I noticed um, that my panties were wet and I knew, I, I knew I was like, it was, it was dribbling. It wasn't like a flood or anything, but I, I just knew it was that my water had broke. And so because my due date was the next day, I actually had a doctor's appointment that day at noon. And so I just ended up going to the doctors normally. By that time, I still hadn't had any contractions. I was just having Braxton Hicks, but nothing out of what I was already feeling for a couple of weeks. And I told the doctor when I started, I was like, I think my water broke. And she was like, oh, oh my goodness, let's check you. So the doctor checked me and I, the water had, in fact, my water had broken. I was one centimeter dilated and 50% effaced at the time. Uh, she described that my cervix was very soft, but you know, again, I wasn't having any contractions, just Braxton Hicks. And so my doctor, who I, I was really having a great experience with, um, at the time I was a little shocked. She immediately went into, well, let's check you in by three o'clock so we can start an induction. And uh, I was really like, at first I was a little bit disappointed in her. I'm not, not going to lie. Cause I was like, what, uh, how, how would she go straight to that? But because I was, you know, confident in everything that I learned in your class and read and, and with Heidi, you know, I, I pushed back on her and I was like, look, I'm really trying for this to start just on its own. Like let my body do its thing. It's pretty early on still. I feel good. She just checked me. She was like your water, you know, in your uterus looks fine. Like, uh, you're fine. So I was like, okay, so let's just wait and see if this like kicks in naturally. So she was like, okay, I'm going to call you around three or four and let, and see if anything has started by then. And I was like, no problem. So I went home. I did a, a number of things. I meditated. I walked. I took a nap. I took a shower. And I was, I was, you know, bouncing on the, on the big bouncy ball and which I had actually had most of my pregnancy. I just started using it. So it was like a natural thing for me to do, but nothing. I still hadn't had any contractions, nothing, not even a peep. And so the doctor indeed called me, it was around four. And she asked me, she's like, so have you started with a little bit of pain? (laughs) And I remember I said, actually, yeah, I I have. And she was like, okay, great. So just wait. And I knew that's what she was going to say. So I did like a little bit of a white lie because I wanted to buy a little more time. And I didn't just want to feel the pressure of the doctors telling me, go, 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 you know? So she was like, I'll call you around eight o'clock. And I was like, great. So again, just kept doing the things that I was already doing. I actually walked, I think it was um, like a mile and a half. Um, I went a number, like 
far and came back, still nothing. Doctor calls me at eight and she was like, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm pretty much the same from what I had told her at four, which was like very mild. I was just starting. But at this point I, I knew it was like 12 hours later. I was like, I'm not sure if this is ever going to start. And I had talked to Heidi and I was like, what do you think? And she's like, you might want to start considering heading to the hospital and then see what happens in that transition and while you're there and whatnot. So it was around eight o'clock that I decided to take a shower, prepare the luggage, all the final stuff to like take with me. And I headed to the hospital at 9 p.m. So I get to the hospital. Um, I had already done all the paperwork. So really it was just like going straight into triage. And uh, when I got into triage, they told me that I was 60 to 70% effaced, still one centimeter. So the nurses with the doctors, you know, um, help basically recommended to start Pitocin right away. And I tried, you know, I tried all my best advocacy efforts and it won. And I was like, let's just wait. And I said, can we just try until 1 a.m.? If at 1 a.m. it doesn't happen, then let's just start Pitocin. I love your strategy in, in almost all any like intervention suggestions to buy time. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. And it was something that I learned from your class. Really, it was like, be confident in buying time. Like if, if an emergency is happening, you'll hear that from the doctor. But if keep buying time and it keeps working, then we'll keep doing it. And so that's what I did. And I felt confident doing it too, because I, I felt okay. Like I was fine. Baby was fine. And so 1 a.m. came around Still, nothing had started happening, not a peep of contractions. At this point, my parents had flown in. They had arrived at the hospital, so I got a chance to see them. Uh, my Heidi, my doula, arrived as well, and I was like, okay, I think it's probably just time we start the Pitocin. And I think at that point, I was a, I was a little discouraged because I was nervous that, I, and from what I had learned, that p- contractions with Pitocin are pretty severe, um, they can be a lot, you know, more sh- stronger in a shorter amount of time. And I was like, my goodness, I'm about to bear this because I knew I was like, if I could help it to the extent that I could think of without knowing what the process was, I didn't want to take any pain medication. And so I think that's what was a little bit nerve wracking to me. And also just any, I don't know, I, the residual potential effects of all of that. But I knew going in and I meditated and I prayed going in that, you know, I, there's only so much I can control. And I was going to like, just allow the process to, to reveal itself. So I welcomed it and started the Pitocin process. <laughs> so we started it at one in the morning. And so how many hours was this after your water broke? This, so my water broke at eight in the morning and this was one in the morning the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever the math of that is, <laughs> that's 16, no, seven, uh, yeah, 17, I think. Something around, exactly. <laughs> <Hours>. <laughs> you know, they say lawyers are bad at math. <laughs> um, so, so it started and at first I, you know, I was bouncing on the ball. I had the labor ball and I was like kind of hovering over the bed, bouncing on it. They did have the monitors on me because they started the Pitocin. They put a hep lock in me, but it wasn't connected to anything. And I, I started, you know, bouncing on it. And clearly it was very clear that like the monitor would come off at certain points. Um, but because I had shared with the nurses and I brought in like a, a, a preferential, you know, birthing plan, they were very kind and helpful and respected and really helped me, you know, through that process at the beginning to like figure out how I could do all of the things that I wanted to do. And one of them was bouncing on this ball. <laughs> and so I would say at the first hour, I really didn't feel too much pain. It was just like, what I would describe as just like regular menstrual cramps. The contractions really didn't start kicking in. I would say until about two hours later and they, and it was because they had to like keep kicking up a little bit, the Pitocin. So it really started about two in the morning. And at this point, you know, my doula Heidi is in like full gear. She's behind me. Um, She's doing pressure points, massaging, uh, and I'm birthing on the ball. And I remember that at one point, once the contraction started getting heavier, one of the nurses was like, oh, you should, you know, lay on your back and see, and see that. And so, <laughs> so I, I go on the bed because they actually had to like take my pressure too. So they, they were doing a, a few things at once at that point. And I was like, okay, sure. So, so I laid on my back and it was the most excruciating <laughs> pain at that point. And I told her, I was like, I'm only going through this one contraction on this bed, not again. So she took, she took the information that she needed, put me back, and I got back on the birthing ball. And so what I did was from the time that I started labor until the time that I ended, which was around, the baby was born at 9, 12 a.m. So for about seven hours, 
Um, the majority I labored on the birthing ball. And then a significant number of that time I was actually on the toilet. Uh, and it was very painful on the toilet, I, as in like more painful than the birthing ball. Um, but I knew that it was working. Like I was opening up. I, I could tell that my body was like laboring differently from sitting there. And the nurses, you know, those 20 to 30 minutes at a time that I was on the toilet, I wasn't on a monitor um, and they were fine with it. Um, I was just about to ask that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they did come in the first few times to check to see what was going on. And when they realized that I was just birthing on the, on the toilet, they were fine. And I should say that my daughter's father, Coloma at the time was also like, he would sit in front of me on the toilet while I was like, <laughs> while I, on the, he was on the birthing ball. I'm sitting on the toilet and we're like going through like the motions together every time I'm like doing the contraction. I think one of the things that was so interesting to me is that I always wondered the sounds that I would make, right? When I was, <laughs> when I was actually laboring or what I would be thinking. And I think one of the things that prepares you like I was kind of describing in terms of like you're preparing for a marathon or you're preparing for something else was learning to do like a mantra and repeat that mantra over and over again in my head as I was doing the contraction and mine was I can do this I just kept saying it over and over again like I can do this I can do this so that was what was going on in my head it was very rhythmic but the sound that I was making <laughs> outside was like a very deep like sound. And I remember you described this, I think in your own birthing experience, I think you might have said I sounded like a cave woman. And that is literally was, that was my experience. Like I was like, uh, like very deep, very low, like a voice that I don't usually <laughs> use. Um, and I just kept doing this over and over and over again, um, literally like the whole entire time that I was having contractions. I think more broadly, the thing in my head was I was thinking of pain with a purpose and that every contraction was going to get me closer to my baby. Um, and then the last thing that I remember thinking, you know, over and over again was something that I actually learned in prenatal yoga. It was just a saying. And it was the idea that like, it's not just you birthing, it's also your baby trying to be born and they're also trying to do their best. And, I, and to me, it was like, you know, it was such a transformative thing to say for me. So all of those things just kept me really grounded while I was going through these like very painful surges. Um, I know everyone describes their experience very differently. You know, some people call them, you know, surges or whatnot. And for some people, it wasn't painful. For me, it was painful, but I could manage it because of the training that I had had going into it. So contractions start getting, you know, further along. It's around 7.30 in the morning and the doctor checks me. I was about seven centimeters at this point. I was 100% effaced and I was at zero station. And when the doctor checked me and um, she realized, and I realized that you could see it, that the baby had pooped. There was a little bit of meconium. And she said that she wasn't worried at all because the baby's heart rate was fine. It was very little. And that I was pretty you know, close that she could see me birthing in like two and a half, three hours. Um, so nothing to worry about. However, I, I got a little bit worried in the sense that I was, I knew what could come of it if something went wrong and the baby, you know, took this into her body and held it or, you know, something. And I think my like mom instinct like kicked into like a thousand. <laughs> and I looked at my doula and I was like, what do I need to do to like, and it wasn't a feeling of like, I need to get her out. It was a feeling of like, I want to get her safely out. Like, what do I need to do? And she was like, you're just going to have to go sit on the toilet. Um, and I was like, all right, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> So I went to the toilet. I probably did a 30-minute session, came back out for a little while, birthed on the labor ball, and then went back in for another 30-minute session. And I can tell you that I literally felt when Kamaki crowned. Like I on the toilet, I the feeling was there was no mistake. I like I gasped because I thought it was she was gonna like fall out or something. And so at that point I, I'm walking out. And I go to the bed. The nurses are like, you know, doing their thing, very chill. This is only about an hour and a half after the doctor had come in originally. And they were like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I'm ready to push. Like, I was like very, you know, calm. <laughs> I'm looking at them like, I, it's like, I'm ready. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. You know, the doctor only checked you not too long ago. So why don't you get to have a seat on the, on the bed? So they put up the squat bar for me. I didn't know what I would want and I didn't realize it was going to go by so quickly. So they did that first. And so I went on the bed, I, you know, had the, the squat bar 
And at this point, you know, my noises started becoming literal screams a little bit, like, like, not, not like screams, but like yelling a little differently. Cause it was, I mean, I was on another out of body experience <laughs> at this point. And I'm telling them, look, I need to push. And so the doctor's walking in at this moment and they're like, oh, and she's like, how are you doing? I'm like, I need to push. Like I, I, you know, I'm just like repeating it. But while she's putting on one glove, the nurse is like, let's just check you. And she unveils me. And you literally hear on the video recording, we, we had a video recording, she, the, they go, oh my goodness. Like literally out loud, the baby's coming like right now. And the doctor, you see in the video, I, I don't remember this. I'm just like, you know, seeing everyone in the video, but she's like, oh wow. And she like, couldn't put her whole garment on. She got into like, Thankfully, she got into full, like, you know, work mode. She put on the other glove immediately and she was like, all right, push, bear down. And so bear down, one push, Kamathi's head comes out. Second push, her whole body was out. And <laughs> it was, it was still one of these experiences where I was like, in my head a little bit, I was like, that was it? Like, it was, it was like two pushes. <laughs> but on the other That's hand, fast for a first time. <laughs> it, it was pretty fast. And so is your induction. But I really think, you know, it sounds like you spent so much time on the ball and on the yeah. toilet. And yep. those things absolutely make a difference in the length of a labor. 100%. Yeah. You know, if, if I ever go through this process again, I, I would totally definitely use those two techniques again. And really the toilet, even though it was painful, I really believe that it opened me up pretty quickly pretty quickly um, mm-hmm. in ways that I don't think I would have had I been laboring different ways for my body. And so, yeah, really grateful that the doula was like my coach and was like, cause at one point I was like, God, the, the toilet is too painful. Like I need like breaks. And she was like, well, it's up to you, you know, like whatever you're feeling. And so at the end, when I was just like, I need to, I need to help this baby. And she was like, go to the toilet. <laughs> so I had the baby, they immediately, you know, put her on me skin to skin and waited I asked for them to wait to clamp the cord until you know we had sufficient time and the cord um you know the blood the way in which they kind of assess that the blood has been transferred was done and soon after she you know latched on pretty pretty quickly and it was it was a beautiful like everything that they described it happened I was like I was really in another world you know I will say that I think even though I was having this like beautiful moment with my daughter, I was very nervous. I was thinking the whole thing around like, please do not let me hemorrhage right now. Literally was what I was thinking. And I had told the doula, like one of the things that I really wanted her to make sure is that like, look at my placenta when they take it out. Like I was like, please, to the best of you lately, like make sure it's all there. And she did that. I, I knew that she did that. I saw her and she was like very confident, very focused. She did what she had to do. Obviously, the doctor was there. She was doing a great job as well. She was just, it was just another check. And I did feel every stitch. (laughs) I had a second degree tear. Um, So, you know, I think the other thing is the doctor had asked me during my check-in the day before whether it was okay to have a student with her. um, Lenox Hospital is one of these hospitals that has that ability. And I was like, sure, no problem. That's totally fine. Like, I get, I was a student once and it was very helpful and I was able to do it. So no problem. Because it was a student helping her, I think they just took a little bit longer, which I think in one hand, it sucked because I'm like feeling the whole thing. (laughs) On the other hand, she literally had, she was saying everything out loud that she was doing to the student. So it kind of helped me a little bit, give me ease to know exactly what they were doing. So I knew when they were stitching it, I knew when she was like finishing it you know, I knew that, you know, at one point she's like, the blood's doing well. So like, she just kept saying things that like was like very reassuring. Um, So I appreciated that. So they stitched me, did the whole process. And yeah, so now, you know, Kimathi was born. And I think the whole experience was very fast in one, in the one hand, I was like, can't believe that just happened. So there was no problem with her breathing, it sounds like at all. There was no with problem the meconium with and yeah, no, great. They did monitor her obviously for for the two days to ensure that she was healthy and that she was okay. But no, there was no problem with that. Um, she was, Yay! God, she was good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think. And I was thinking about this and thinking about our podcast at our first class, first or second class. You asked all the moms in the group. You said, "How could you describe your birth? Like, how would you want to describe your birth?" In two words, I think it was. And I remember I said, powerful and transformative. And I kid you not, I mean, that is exactly how I describe it to my friends, to my family, to people who ask me. It was the first time in my life where 
I was completely confident and in tune and trusting of my body in ways that I cannot explain. Uh, you know, and I've previewed this a little bit, but it's like we live in a world where women are often told not to do those things, to not trust themselves, to not trust their bodies, not just in giving birth, but in many of our experiences that have to do with ourselves. But this experience, you know, really was transformative and powerful, not just because I was becoming her mom, but I really had to trust my body to do what it had to do to birth this child. And I was, you know, just grateful that, that I had that experience and, and the training that you and Heidi provided was really instrumental to that. Do you have any specific tips on how women can tap into that confidence? That is a great question. I think a few things. The first thing is, you know, whatever your spiritual connection, you know, whether it is, you know, thinking of ancestors or maybe your religious, you know, deity or God or religion or church, but I think really tapping into something that's bigger than ourselves in that moment. Um, and that comes in very different forms for me. And I think in that moment, tapping into that was, was very much one thing. I think the second thing was just thinking about my baby. I, like I, I was thinking about her, like going through my birth canal, really picturing the work that she was doing, um, knowing that like she wanted to be born just as much as I wanted to become a mom. And so we wanted to meet each other in the outside world and just really focusing on her as well. And then the last thing I think, you know, it's like one of these things where you prepare, right? Like you did everything that you could within, you know, our means and, you know, the abilities and all the things that we have. But at the same time, it's kind of just letting go, like, like really embracing the fact that I knew if, if I had to have a C-section and if I had to have whatever, if I needed to get an epidural, even though that wasn't my choice, but whatever what was welcoming in that moment, that I was going to embrace it and be okay and confident with it, um, even if it wasn't what I specifically planned or had envisioned. And so I think those three things were very, very helpful. And, you know, it, it really was, in a way, I think the first time that I just was like letting all of those things just like overwhelm me and just really be confident in the decisions in the moment that I was making. Uh, I love that. Thank you so much. There's so much wisdom there. Of course, of course. <laughs> Great. Well, do you want to get into like back to uh, where we were in time and breastfeeding yes. and initial postpartum? Yes, I'd love to. So initial postpartum. So I was in the hospital for two days and um, I think I, at the, at the beginning, I, I realized this, but I, I was very like welcoming of everything they said postpartum in ways that I was not during the birth. And I wish that I had prepped or felt as confident in that moment as well, looking back now. And so I say that because, so I was, I had stitches, but I didn't know exactly where my stitches were. I didn't know how many I had. I didn't, I, I knew how to take care of them generally. Like I knew how to like clean them and all that but I was a very loss in this moment of like, what is going on? And I say that because they're literally for, for a week, even after I left the hospital, I was using those very thick pads that they give you. And I couldn't, even when I was at the hospital, I, I could not sit upright. Like I had to always be like either leaning back or to the side. And I couldn't, I could not understand why I couldn't, I could barely walk. And it wasn't because of the, my body's pain. It was because of the stitches pain. And so I just thought this is normal, right? Like this is normal. I just had a baby. I have like a second degree tear, but something in me was like, what is going on? And so after my doula came back to visit me at the house around day five postpartum, I asked her, I was like, I'm struggling to sit. Like, like not because my body doesn't want to sit, but it's like, literally it's like excruciating pain when I do at the incision site. And she was like, well, what are, what are you wearing? Like how, you know, you, you're, and then she started going into like, well, your incision looks like this. This is where it's at. And she literally was like, it's on the left side. It's on the outer side of your like labia. Um, so at, first time I envisioned what it actually looked like, where it was. <laughs> and she was like, you might want to think through using these like padsicles. Um, she described them to me. But the, the thing that was radically different was when I switched to the padsicles, they were very thin pads, very thin. And I realized once I switched that I needed to stop using the thick pads because they were brushing up on my stitches and I literally couldn't sit. So I think, you know, bringing this back to the, to the, you know, initial postpartum phase at the hospital, I think had the hospital, the doctors told me, you know, 
this is where your stitches are. Here's how many you have. You could, you know, consider using a thinner pad so it doesn't burn up, brush up on your stitches, things that I just would have had no idea about. Um, it would have been a much easier transition after that initial phase. I think the fact that I wasn't able to sit upright for, for such a long time was really, it, it really like, impacted my mind because I was like, what is going on? Like, I, I can't sit. <laughs> and so I, that's one thing. I think the second thing was, you know, the hospital had lactation consultants and, you know, I requested them immediately because by day two, my nipples were cracked, bleeding, sore. And, you know, but I knew again, like, I was like, it doesn't matter if I'm like bleeding, this baby is going to get this colostrum. <laughs> but I, that was me, you know, that was that, that was my experience. That's what I wanted. And I asked for them. I, I, they came to my room. I asked for them like three times because I was really struggling. And I remember seeing the videos that you had sent on latching, the videos that I had seen on YouTube and just endless things that I had looked up on. And I remember looking at Kamathi thinking, she's not opening her mouth as wide. And I was like, maybe she's just little. Or, you know, I started second guessing that innate like thought that like she's not, it's not that we're not latching together. It's just that she can't open her mouth large enough, big enough. And so anyways, they came in, they were like, no, she's latching on fine. It's, this is just what happens. It's normal. You're doing great. Blah, blah, blah. All right. Go home. I'm still bleeding, cracked nipples. I mean, breastfeeding, to be quite honest, the first two months was the most excruciating. It was way more painful for me than the birth. Not just the actual time, not just every time she would latch, but just the experience of those first two months. And that was really, really tough. Thankfully, my doula, when she did come to visit those um, few days after I was home, you know, she was like, so how are you doing with breastfeeding? I showed her my nipples and she was like, oh, this is not supposed to be like that. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad you say that <laughs> because everyone at the hospital was like, oh, this is normal. And so she was like, no, this is definitely not supposed to be this way. She's like, let me look at the baby. So she takes Kamathi. She like lays her in front of her, opens her mouth. Sure enough, she goes, Kamathi has both lip tie and tongue tie. And I had no idea, you know, what these things, I mean, I had vaguely an idea, but I, I would have not known to like look at it. And so she goes, so Kamathi literally can't, first, she can't open her mouth wide enough. And second, she can't latch on correctly because her tongue is not doing what it needs to do because it can't. And it was like, oh my God, like someone hears me, like I'm not going crazy. <laughs> my daughter, she literally can't do it. So she recommended a number of, you know, specialists that do the procedure and I was at the doctor's office, you know, within two days of that. And that was a whole nother ordeal where it was like, I was a week postpartum. I was in severe like pain from like my nipples were just like constantly in pain. And it was the first time that I had to make this really big decision about my daughter's literal body, right? Like I'm about to like cut something in her body. And, and what made it even more difficult was that the specialist said, it's not bad enough to where it's going to impact her speech or, her, you know, anything later in life. But if you want to breastfeed her, then you're going to want to do this procedure because it will always be painful. And so it was one of those things where it was like, oh my God, like everything was impounding on me. It was like, am I doing this for selfish reasons? Like, does she, re you know, all of these things. And so, and of course, you know, seven days postpartum, your hormones all, all over the place. And so I, I stuck to my gut and I was like, no, I think breastfeeding trumps this momentary, like little pain that she's going to experience. And so they, right, I mean, it was very quick. I mean, she was like, literally, I just held her and the doctor, you know, clipped her right under her tongue, right under her lip. And she bled for like two seconds and I latched her on and it was radically different, literally immediately. Like immediately. Wow. It usually takes a couple of weeks to like heal I mean, and for things we, to kind of get better, but yeah, great. Yeah. I mean, we still had some practicing to do. Like it wasn't like my nipples went great after that. <laughs> sure. But, but the latch itself, I mean, it, it really did feel differently uh, mm. immediately. It was really, um, really amazing. So we did that. And, you know, I think the postpartum part, once I figured out the patsicles, once I figured out, you know, just starting the breastfeeding journey of healing and then like really getting into the flow after we fixed the lip tie and the tongue tie, it started to get much better. I think the last hardship or just experience that I had was I did get baby blues and it was like textbook baby blues. I had it for the first two weeks and literally I was like done on day 14. And I say that because literally on day 15, I'm like, 
I didn't have the symptoms that I was having. And I remember making a note of it in a journal that I had because I was like, this is incredible, like literally two weeks. And I knew that I self-diagnosed it in the sense that I was like, I didn't have like a doctor tell me that I had it, but I, I'm pretty sure I did in the sense that, you know, I was having this feeling of the first two weeks, like every time the sun would go down of dread, like I really felt dreadful, like something was going to go wrong. I didn't know what was going to go wrong. I, I couldn't put, you know, my finger on it, but it was really, really intense and I would cry. And it, it wasn't like I would cry the whole night, but it was like for this, maybe like 30 minutes at night, I just had this fear and I was having a lot of nightmares of children dying, not, not just mine, but just generally, like I was in like war zones and like just, just the image and the feeling of that. And it was really scary. Um, and I remember, this is a great segue. So these are the main three things that I was experiencing, like initial postpartum phase, in addition to like all the wonderful stuff, which is important, <laughs> which was, yes, breastfeeding was difficult, but I was so like, I, I was just like so confident and I, I knew that no matter what, that like my child was getting fed, even in the midst of like not knowing, I, I was confident in that and it was beautiful. And like, here we are 14 months later and we're still breastfeeding. Kamathi was exclusively breastfed until she started eating solids. And she did it. She started eating solids really on her own around seven, eight months. And, you know, we have no intention of stopping. She's, she very clearly still wants to breastfeed. And, you know, I'm kind of following her cues on that. So I'm just so happy that I did that. And it's, I, I love breastfeeding so much so that like I am, I'm truly considering at some point in my life becoming a lactation consultant, not just because of the love that I experienced, but it's just the, the wrath of information that we're getting that's just not great and that's wrong. And I think if we are going to make choices as moms, like we should make informed choices. And so, yeah, so that's that's one piece. And there's obviously like a racial justice component to that where it's like, you know, women of color and black moms are the ones that breastfeed the most. They're also the ones that are getting bombarded by formula companies the most. They're the ones that have to go to back to work quicker. I mean, there's like a whole host of issues that go with this. And so anyways, huge advocate <laughs> of breastfeeding, um, but also just a huge advocate of moms having real informed choices and life experiences and birthing experiences and nursing experience that they actually want to have. So that's the, the, the one part. And the other part is just not knowing anything <laughs> about what it was going to be like postpartum, I think the one thing that I would have done different was really um, surrounded myself with my family to support me in ways that I needed to be supported. So I was living in New York at the time, New York City, and it was really just me, Kamathi's dad, and Kamathi. My parents and my grandma and my sister came to visit the first week, but then they went back and that was it. I didn't have any family, nothing, no support. Um, so it was very, very difficult for, for all of us in the sense of like everything that was not baby related, right? So like the tours and the food and just all of these other things that go with not just a new baby, but really becoming a new mom and new parents. And I think I, I thinking back, I think I would have done something to allow myself to have that support had I needed it more. But I think what I did do <laughs> and what we did do was like, we really didn't beat ourselves up about those things because bonding with the baby, being with the baby, um, really understanding that like time was going to pass. Like it was this time that we had to be with her. And I really embraced that. And I'm proud that I did that. And like, I don't regret that at all. And it worked out and it worked out really, really well. I, I have a beautiful bond. I like to think uh, with my child. And I think that um, I think all of those things really fostered having that. And so I'm just really happy that that, that kind of came out to be that way. So I think, you know, being a new mom in a city by myself, having had a baby in October, which was starting the cold months, which meant we were really kind of like cooked up for the first three months in the house for the mo for most of it. And not having like family or friends nearby, I think outside of needing practical chores, uh, like support, like chores and food and all these things, I really didn't understand. And especially as it related to breastfeeding, all of the affirmational support and the emotional support that I would need. And I didn't really know where to get that. I wasn't really getting it in person and I really, really needed it, especially in the wee hours of the night when I'm breastfeeding for like the sixth time <laughs> and I'm still in pain or I had thrush or still not figuring out how to pump correctly or, you know, everything that you, that all of us in some way, shape or forms are experiencing that feeling of like overwhelm and not knowing like, is this normal? Am I doing okay? 
And actually the support that I had that came up very quickly and I was so grateful for it was actually moms on social media. And the way that that came to be was I post a lot on social media. (laughs) It's a way that I like to connect with friends and people. I also do a lot of advocacy on there, like not, you know, branded or anything, but just my own advocacy. I like to talk about, you know, different things. And I just started posting a lot on my Instagram stories every day. I would just point, like post my experiences or if I had a question or, you know, would take pictures or ask for advice. And at the beginning, I really was just doing it as a way to just one document two to just have interaction with people outside of my home. (laughs) And uh, what quickly happened was that moms, moms that I knew um, that lived in other states, um, moms from law school that actually were having babies at the same time I was, and moms that I didn't even know in person or had never met, were basically writing me every day. We were DMing each other every day at the wee hours of the night, you know, answering questions providing support, like you're doing a great job. Like, I'm so proud of you. Like a one month breastfeeding, woohoo, way to go. Like these little affirmations that were daily or weekly that really, really pushed me through. I think, you know, they say it takes a village. And I think in this new age, for me at least, the village also included this group of women on social media, some that I had never met or even moms that I met that I really never saw. And so I'm just so eternally grateful for that and I tell them all the time because we still talk. Obviously, we don't talk as much for some of them, but we're, we're still like constantly like talking to each other at times. And I tell them like, thank you. Like I, I am 14 months in my breastfeeding journey because you like supported me through it. Like I had women tell me like wear nipple shields that first week where I was like completely bleeding. I didn't know what nipple shields were. There was a mom on social media. I had another mom tell me about, you know, lanolish cream or like this other cream or try this or, you know. And really, um, just really, really grateful for that way of just connecting with other moms that I, I, especially as someone who was alone, that I think I really needed. It was great. I'm so glad that you found that source of support. Yeah. We need it in some form at whatever form works. Like that's <laughs> great because especially with social media, people are all over the place in time zones. And so yeah. like in the middle of the night, like you were saying, when you're doing the sixth feeding of the night and you're like, I need support, yeah. somebody is probably awake and is going to respond to you. And you <laughs> That know. is exactly right. And it really did happen. I remember distinctly a friend from mine from law school who her son was born, I think like two weeks earlier than Kamathi. So we were like pretty much, you know, on this journey together. But because she's on the West Coast, she was three hours earlier than I was. So it actually worked out perfectly because we were, whenever we like pinged each other, we responded because it was like the timing worked out. We also like sent each other books on like postpartum, like little care packages to like other moms. I mean, it was just so beautiful and like welcoming. And I'm just, yeah, eternally grateful for that space. That is fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Now I'm like, oh, I wish I had been following your (laughs) stories then because I could have been encouraging you too and learning from you. (laughs) But really not, it makes me think like so glad you have an Instagram, so glad that like people that can know about it through this, you know, podcast, but that's another avenue where, you know, it's advocacy and also support. And I hope people also take advantage of that too. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, you brought up pumping. Did you start pumping early on? What did that look like? So I actually, you know, one of the things that you actually advised us on was if you don't have to start pumping right away, give yourself a break. If you don't have to, right? And I I didn't have to. I had almost four months of maternity leave for my job. And so I really didn't start pumping until probably month three postpartum. Um, And it was really just to start building a stash. I had a pretty robust supply of of milk. And so I I was just like stashing every time she would feed, I would pump right after that. And then once in the middle of the night, if she wouldn't, you know, wake up, although she still does wake up, (laughs) we co-sleep. So she wakes up sometimes, but so I started around month three and it's still something I detest. I really don't like pumping. <laughs> it's just tedious. Like it's not, it's not just the feeling that I don't like, but it's just like the tediousness of having to clean it and, and all of these things. Like you would think if men actually breastfed, I am very sure that we would have much better technology at this point. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, yes. So I started around month three. Something that I think is important to say, and I share this with people who are my friends and, and follow me and like see that I've been breastfeeding for so long in the context of like what's normal in this country 
is I work remotely. So I work from home. And even though Kamafi, you know, she's with someone most of the time, like when she wants to breastfeed to the extent that I can't, I just, you know, on demand, I still just breastfeed her or she still sometimes breastfeeds to sleep. She nurses to sleep. And I think all of those things have one kept my supply up for this long. And I have a lot of moms who are working moms who will like, you know, DM me are like, I'm losing my supply. Like I'm working. And it's like, I totally hear that. And I totally sympathize with that because at the end of the day, the way in which we think of working in the United States is not compatible with a mom who wants to nurse, right? Like pumping is going to impact your supply differently um, than if you're, you know, attaching your, your child onto the breast. And so I, I really think that part of the reason why I've gone this long is because I work remotely and I had four months to just exclusively like focus on my child. I think most people in this country don't have that opportunity and don't have that chance. And it's really, it's really crappy for the moms who choose that breastfeeding is for them and they can't because they start seeing this dwindling of supply or it just becomes difficult or clogged ducts. And it's just really upsetting. It's, it's one of the reasons why I think mother mortality and infant advocacy and things like, you know, social justice and racial justice, all of these things go together because how we think about maternity leave, paternity leave, parental leave and nursing, those things go together. And so, yeah, just really grateful for the privilege that I have had in working from home to be able to continue breastfeeding the way that I have. So as an attorney, have you done much work in that specific field or are, do you see yourself doing even more as a result of your experiences? You know, I, I don't directly, I'm not directly in that field of like, you know, infant advocacy or, you know, mother justice or, you know, uh, work, but indirectly, right? Like, I think if we have a country that's thriving in, in democracy, <laughs> where our elections are actually understood as like one person, one vote, um, and they're actually counted equitably, like eventually, right, I would hope that our country and our folks vote for people who, you know, respect those things. But having a system that is just and equitable in and of itself, I think, you know, indirectly will impact all of those things. So I'm currently working on that kind of aspect of like protecting and ensuring that our democracy stays in place. But I hope to like, you know, eventually do some more work directly in that field. If not, maybe lactation consultant one day, I'm still shooting for that. <laughs> I love that. That's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for that work you're doing. It, it's much needed. So of course, of good course. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I just remembered one thing. In the postpartum phase, one of the things that was the most helpful was your Amazon list that you had curated for students. And honestly, I say that for two reasons. One, even though I had read up on like postpartum and everything, I had not prepped for it in the way that I had prepped for everything else in the sense of like the things that I needed or the tools that I could, you know, quickly get to. And your Amazon list had things like an herbal salt um, to like soak soak in postpartum. And that herbal salt was incredible for me. I mean, I, 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 Yay. I also put it inside the actual mom washer, the, the Frida, I forgot what it's called. Yeah. The Frida. The, yeah. So I would mm-hmm. actually just put one tablespoon inside of it with the warm water. And when I would cleanse myself with it, I, it was in there. And I mean, it was such a, it was amazing. I actually bought it for other moms. But it was just the Amazon list also had a number, like the actual Frida Bajay thing and a number of things that actually just ended up being incredibly helpful that I would have never thought about had you not curated that list for us. So this is just another plug for the list and for people and for moms to just think through in ways that I hadn't just like really what you need postpartum. Oh, I'm so thankful to hear that that was useful to you. It was. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was maybe a year ago that I suddenly had this light bulb and I was like, let me make people's lives easier and just make so this good. little list and yeah, make it efficient because you got enough going on in pregnancy already. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then you're like, I'm trying to keep this little person alive. And then you become this like secondary person. It's like, well, you need to take care of yourself too. So yes, <laughs> very helpful. <laughs> Stephanie, so many parents, as they enter into parenthood, experience some relationship challenges. And I I know that you've had your own and just wanted to know if you'd like to share any of that. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question. I appreciate you seeing me in this moment. 
No, I think that when you have a child, what happens is that whatever maybe wrinkles in your relationship that were there before the child was born kind of heightens in that moment, right? Two people are exhausted. They're trying to take care of this little person who has just been born and keep this little person alive. And you're sleep deprived. And we know that studies show that like sleep deprivation is like torture. (laughs) You're not eating well. Um, There's a whole number of factors that go into that. And so I think you know, whatever wrinkles in the relationship might have already been there are kind of heightened in that in that moment. And so I think with all the grace and the mercy that you can find, I think even though, you know, Kamathi's father and I have had our challenges, I think in the midst of it all, we've kind of stayed focused on the thing that matters the most in this moment, which is our daughter and our daughter really having two healthy, happy and whole parents. And if that means that our relationship dynamic changes as it relates to he and I, then that's okay. But it's, we're always going to be family. Um, and she's always going to be a part of our lives and she's our daughter. And I think really what guides in that moment is it's that. And I think remembering that North Star. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to the new transition and the new co-parenting relationship that will emerge even in the moment of like grief and sadness of like this, this life and relationship that you really thought you were going to have. But I think just staying focused and really tapping into, again, kind of what your spiritual or the something bigger than you, where you look to um, staying focused. And um, I, I think I'm just grateful for that. And I'm grateful to have support system, family and friends. I'm grateful that he also has that as well in this moment. And yeah, it's just kind of looking forward to learning as hard as it may be, how to really thrive in this new dynamic of family. Thank you so much for sharing that. That means so much to me that you're willing to be vulnerable and, you know, because I think we need to talk about that kind of thing more yeah, because absolutely. it's hard. It's so hard and it's, and yet it's really common. Yeah. I hate to use the word common, but you no, know, it, it happens a lot. It's very hard. And I think, you know, there's like this, there's this moment where you also like as a, as a person, as a mom and as a, as a, as a human being, you also need support very much early on postpartum. You're just learning how to become a mom in this whole new identity. And as I'm sure the father is as well, or whoever the other partner is in the relationship, whatever their sex or gender is. But at least for me, in my experience, becoming a new mom, I really needed support. And I think I eventually got to a point where I realized that I needed to place myself in a space where I had what I needed. And it took a little bit long, but I also give myself like the grace and the, and the kindness of like, I was very much focused on my baby um, and what I thought in the moment was the best for her. And I still think it was, but yeah, I think we, we just shouldn't also like lose sight of exactly what you're saying, which is these things happen. They're not taboo. It happens more likely than, than we as a society talk about. And I think that instead of like, attaching shame or fear to it and not to say that I didn't experience these things I'm not you know immune from them but I think what I learned quickly is that the more I stay in that space the less I'm going to be able to get support and help in a way that was going to help me help my daughter she deserves a happy and healthy mom as well and so I think once I started letting go of the shame and the fear and my own ego in the situation I was able to start kind of going into this new phase and new healing and new support system that I needed. And I think we're on the right track. What you just shared, I so admire how emotionally healthy you sound. Like that's just re- <laughs> and really mature, you know, really just, ah. Uh, it's it's awesome. a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but, um, but yeah, I have faith. wonderful thank you so any last tips or things you wanted to say before we wrap things up you know I would just say like I said at the beginning really trust yourself for the moms who are giving birth who are pregnant really trust yourself your decisions how you envision your birth really like don't take in so much what society is saying of, of not doing those things I think it's counter counter what we're taught counter the ways in which we're we're brought up counter what you see on television and I know this is kind of like cliche because it's like well the birth is not what you see on television but it's really not in many ways and so I would say really just trust yourself and learn how to embrace what is uncertain in the moment as well and that you're going to get closer to your baby very soon and it's going to be incredible and magical and exactly perfect for the two of you. Love it. Thank you, Stephanie. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so glad we finally got to talk. Me too. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed Stephanie's birth story as much as I did. 
Before we call it a wrap, I'll go over a few quick topics that came up. Induction, the IV and the HEPLOC, vocalization, and racial disparities in breastfeeding rates. Did you know that, according to evidence-based birth, 42.9% of first pregnancies are induced in the U.S.? And I have a strong hunch that this statistic might be even higher here in New York, though I haven't seen any stats on that. Induction, which means starting a labor in some non-spontaneous way, whether with drugs, tools, or procedures, is a riskier and most often a harder, longer path to choose, so it's not something to take lightly. There are certainly some times in which an induction is absolutely necessary, but in our country where we have some of the worst outcomes for mothers of the developed nations of the world, there are many cases in which induction is not truly medically necessary. Instead, they're done out of impatience or fear that's not really based in any real truth or evidence. A quality childbirth class will help you navigate this on a more granular level, but in general, if your care provider is starting to talk about scheduling an induction, you can always ask for an explanation as to the reasons and the evidence behind those reasons. What are the benefits? What are the risks? What happens if we wait? You do have the right to decline an induction if you're not convinced it's truly necessary. Regarding Stephanie's mention of a HEPLOC, I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about why a low-risk healthy person shouldn't have to have an automatic IV. IVs are standard in most hospitals. They're a kind of set-it-and-forget-it kind of mentality. It's easier for nurses to not have to come in and constantly ask if a laboring person has been drinking fluids, and even if they could do that, there's no way for the hospital to manage the quantities without an IV. If a laboring person becomes dehydrated, it can definitely slow down the labor, so the hydration is very important. Therefore, most hospitals administer IV by default. However, there are reasons that a healthy, low-risk laboring person should not have to have a default IV until or unless medications are used that necessitate it. It's usually going to bode better for a healthy labor for a low-risk laboring person to drink to thirst. Let me explain a few reasons why you might want to request to either drink to thirst with no IV or to have a port called a HEP lock or saline lock. I'll go from the least compelling to the most compelling reasons to either have no IV fluids or to request half or maybe even a third of the normal maintenance amount. First, the more things that we're hooked up to in labor, the more it contributes to a sick patient mentality, which does not help the process along. Also, you can be mobile and move around to facilitate progress in labor while hooked up to an IV, but it's a bit of a hindrance. Everywhere you go, you're having to drag along this metal tower on wheels. Another consideration is that it's easier to miss it if the hospital staff are hanging a bag of medication, such as Pitocin, without mentioning it, to run through the IV, which happens a lot. And then the two most compelling reasons to consider having either fewer fluids or no IV fluids in labor have to do with breastfeeding. First, the baby is often born with extra water weight and then loses quite a bit of weight right after birth, which often causes hospital staff to panic and unnecessarily encourage formula to be given to the baby. We've talked about this in other episodes, but as long as the baby does not lose more than 10% of their birth weight, this weight loss is normal and there should be no reason to supplement, of course, in the absence of any other medical concern. Yet many hospitals do encourage supplementation, even when the weight loss is below 10%. Second, the parent who has given birth has extra water weight as well, or edema. It takes around a week to get rid of that extra amount of fluids, which can interfere with breast milk coming in, which usually happens around day three to five. When there's too much fluid in the breasts, it can either delay the onset of milk production, which is obviously less than ideal, or the milk comes in and it can cause issues such as engorgement, plugged ducts, or a breast infection called mastitis because the breast is now overcrowded. Lactation consultants I know here in New York say this is a constant problem with the standard level of IV fluids that are pumped into mothers. This doesn't mean that parents can't breastfeed or chest feed, but it does mean that it's much more likely you might need a lactation consultant to help with troubleshooting and strategies to help overcome those challenges. I recommend asking your care provider if you can opt out of the IV. If your care provider resists this idea, you could either ask for less of the fluid or could say you're willing to compromise by having a HEP lock or saline lock, which are interchangeable terms. Saline lock is the more accurate current term as that's what's used these days. 
With this, the hospital staff go ahead and do the front end work of finding a vein, inserting a needle, and keeping it open with saline so that it's a port for quick hookup should the need arise for an IV. The HEPLOC will be a workable compromise for many care providers and can be a great option for anyone who has to have antibiotics in labor due to being group B strep positive. With GBS, the protocol in the U.S. is to get antibiotics once every four hours. So the laboring person could hook up to the IV just for a few minutes once every four hours and then unplug from the IV the rest of the time. Stephanie discussed vocalizing in labor. Vocalizing can be a very helpful, instinctive coping tool for some people and not for others. One very important thing to ask yourself is whether vocalizing energizes you or if you find it draining. You would only want to make sound if it's energizing for you. For some women, vocalizing feels very empowering and kind of like, I am woman, hear me roar, but not for others. Another principle with vocalizing is that you want to keep in mind that the most relaxed way for the vocal folds to create sound is in the mid to low range. Because relaxation is very important in labor, and because there is a very real correlation between the state of your jaw and throat and that of your pelvic floor, it's very important to keep the jaw and throat loose and relaxed in labor. This is because the pelvic floor needs to relax and open for the baby to come down and out. That might sound odd if you've never heard it before, and yet it's true. If your tone climbs as you vocalize in labor, it's both tension-producing and exhausting, and yet we often don't have the bandwidth in labor to realize this and might need our labor support to guide us. I talked about this in episode two when my husband and I shared our first baby's birth story. Something to ponder. If you had to describe birth in one or two words, what would those be? No judgment, just whatever pops into your head. Okay, here's a sneak peek of what's up next week. When they say like, you know, you're kind of on like a high for like that first hour, that was absolutely 100% what it felt like. It was absolutely euphoric. I was just so in love. (laughs) I just, I remember like seeing him when he was first born. I just like started immediately like bawling my eyes out because it was just the most amazing thing. You know, Mm -hmm. like you feel them moving for nine months. You talk to them, you sing to them, you do all these things. And then like, they're there. And it's like, wow, you're real. Like I made that. (laughs) Yeah. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. This week, as well as through labor and into parenting, I want you to remind yourself, like Stephanie did, I can do this. I can do this. Thanks so much for listening to the Birth Matters podcast, and we'll see you next week.